All right, we're in uh, page one of the notes. There are notes in the back if you need a, need a set. Anne. Like I said, we're on page one. Uh, um, last week we did leave off, and I did not really cover in any depth the four things that Paul did in light of the gospel. And that is in verses 16 and 17, Paul says that he is not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to all who believe, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, that is in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. For as it is written, the righteous man shall live by faith. Um, And as we discussed last week, if you weren't here, that Paul's belief in the power of the gospel, that his confidence in the gospel led him to do four things in that passage we looked at last week. And that was, first of all, he praised God for the Roman Christians. He said, your, your, your witness goes out throughout the whole world, and I praise God for that. Uh, secondly, he said, I, I am praising, but I'm also praying for you. And Paul said, because I believe in the confidence, I have a confidence in this gospel, I'm praying that God will use it where you are. But then thirdly, Paul said he planned to come to Rome, as you recall, and his desire was to come there and preach the gospel to them as well. And one of the questions might be, why would Paul preach the gospel to believers? Because the book of Romans is an explanation of the gospel. It is not the gospel as preached. You you know what I'm saying? They were Christians in Rome that he was writing to, but Paul's writing to them about the gospel because he wants to understand the backstory of the gospel. He wants them to understand the implications of the gospel. And he wanted to come and preach on the gospel in Rome. And then fourthly, Paul said, I not only do that, but I want to preach there. I want to preach among the Romans, but I want to preach to you the glories of Christ in the gospel and the implications of it. There it is, Anne. That's all I'll do. And so today we're going to carry on now into verses 18 to 32. And so if you look at the top of the page, we're in the book of Romans. We're in lesson four, the Gentiles day in court. Romans 1, 18 to 32. Now, there's one word in this passage that I'm about to read that you must understand what it means before you can comprehend what it's all about. Paul now turns his study in Romans to this. I am confident in the gospel. It does amazing stuff. And I preach it everywhere I go. But he now turns to the subject of sin, the next two chapters, and why Gentiles, moralists, both Gentiles and Jews, and Jews are all under the wrath of God. Paul's point, and if you look at verse 18, I'm about to read that whole passage. Verse 18 starts out with the word, for the wrath of God. That is Paul saying, because of the wrath of God. Paul says, I am confident in the gospel that it does this work. And I must preach the gospel. Why? Because everyone needs the gospel. There's no one ever born. There's no ethnicity. There's no geography. There's no socioeconomic situation in which that person does not need the gospel. And that everyone isn't just sick. Everyone is under the wrath of God. Today's tone, Paul's tone in this passage, and the tone in which I will probably 
mostly deliver this is in the tone of a very sober look at Scripture. Let's read verses 18 to 32 and then comment. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man, and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Therefore, God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity, so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and worship and serve the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason God gave them over to degrading passions, For their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way, also the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire towards one another, men with men, committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. Welcome to America in 2022. In this next section, Romans 1:18 to 3:20, Paul will talk now again about the subject of sin as it relates to the Jews and Gentiles, and will build the case, it's a court case against humanity. Uh, the word evidence is in here several times. Is You clearly saw that. And then in the case of the Gentile, the moralist, and the Jew, Paul will end his summary of each of their court cases with this. They are without excuse. Now the Greek word there, is the Greek word we get the word apologetics from. Apologia. But they are anaapologia, without a defense. They stand in God's courtroom without a lawyer to defend them. They have no excuse. No one will be there to defend. And there's no one who's ever lived will have a defense in God's courtroom to say, I didn't know. 
I never met a missionary. Uh, you didn't send the right person. We, we, we were a little confused about that. Um, it wasn't quite clear. Those radio preachers were hypocrites, so I didn't listen to it. Whatever the excuse is, in the mind of man, the Bible says, everyone will stand without an excuse. So God's ultimate court case, let's just say what chapter 3 will tell us. What will be the verdict? Chapter 3, verses 9 to 12, right there on page 1. What then, Paul says, are we better than they? Not at all, for we have already charged. See the, the language of the court. We have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, not one, not even one. There are none who understand. There's none who even seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. But what about Mother Teresa? What about the good people? There are none. Not even the Pope? <laughs> exactly. In order to appreciate the gospel that Paul will begin to explain in chapter 3, we Christians, not just unbelievers, we Christians have to dive back into something we have forgotten perhaps. How horrible the reality of the power of sin was over our lives before we were Christians and that we were under the wrath of God. We weren't just in a broken friendship with God who was this fun guy. We were under God's wrath, justly under his wrath, and would have perished like all the rest without the gospel. And so Paul is backtracking us to that to make sure we understand. Friends, not only were you under the wrath of God, but every person you meet every day who does not know Jesus Christ is not going to be under the wrath of God only. But this passage, Romans 1, says they are currently present tech under the wrath of God today. So how will man plea in the court case? Uh, Paul brings out some arguments, if you will, that would naturally be brought forth. And I suggest at the bottom, what will be the plea, if you will, of the Gentile who says, hey, you know, I was just living wherever I didn't know about all this. They'll play this. I'm not guilty. We didn't know any better. The moralist, who is that? That's the sophisticated pagan. That's the, that's the Ivy League professor. That's the Athens philosopher in Paul's day. The, they're like, I'm not a pagan. I'm not into these mystery religions. I'm, I'm sophisticated in my thinking. I'm a philosopher. I'm, I'm a moral person. Their argument will be, we knew better than the barbarians. So let's curve this standard, right? But then the Jew will say, we're not guilty because we are better than the rest. We have God's word. We're closer to God. He's given us all those things. Perhaps the barbarian might say relative to being sick with the gospel, oh, you never sent a doctor, so there was nothing we could have done. There was no missionary in my jungle point. No one ever came to this place, so I'm not guilty. The barbarian, then the moralist might say, I don't have a need for a doctor. I'm a good person. And the Jew says, we're immune. We've never even been sick. That's what they told Jesus. We have no need for that. 
And what did Jesus do? Perhaps you could say it's tongue-in-cheek, as we understand it. But when the Pharisees said to Jesus, we don't need that. He said, well, I've only come for the sick. That didn't teach a theology there are some people who aren't sick, right? Jesus is just saying, well, you're right. I can't help you. You're not sick. You have to know you're sick. All right. At the bottom of that page, as I said, it is not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. That kind of pictures that scene where the man is beating his chest before God and saying, God, I'm a sinner. I'm not worthy of your forgiveness. And the Pharisees like, I thank God that I'm not as this man. So page two. God's case against the Gentiles. Let's do that. We're going to look today at two basic things. That God's case against the Gentiles is on the basis of God's wrath against them is that they suppress the truth and the knowledge of God and that the Gentiles are idolaters. Secondly, the results of that. Those are the three he gave them over, right? What did God do in, to respond to this in his wrath? He did three things. He gave them over to dishonored bodies. He gave them over to dishonorable passions and the due penalty within those passions. And he gave them over to depraved minds. So before I go forward, because we're going to talk about the word wrath here in a minute with my Anne, do you like the picture I drew in the middle of the page? I love it, and it also has color. Yeah. Uh, bef- when I study passages of Scripture to teach, I always draw, okay, just for my own thinking. Yeah. Let me talk about the word wrath in this passage because it's the key to understanding it for us Christians. Think of the word anger for a minute. And how scripture says in Ephesians 4, be angry, but don't sin. Okay? So anger in itself is not sinful until it gets to a certain point. Anger can be, and we've heard this, righteous indignation, righteous anger. God's anger is righteous. He is just and holy. But in man, we are supposed to be able to be angry. It's okay to be angry when you hear of an atrocity or an evil done or something done that's terribly wrong against God's law. Anger is a response that's not necessarily evil. But what makes anger evil or unjust? The ABCs of anger are simply this. When you do it arbitrarily, that there's no standard for your anger. It's the person who gets angry off the cuff. The person who's angry at their friends and their foes. The person who gets angry, there's no particular, you're like, man, I don't know what's going to happen. Arbitrary anger, not based on law or based on standards, is wrong. But God always has his anger against that which violates his holiness. Secondly, not only is it arbitrary, uh, it's ba- <laughs> it's, it has no boundaries. Unrighteous anger has no boundaries. Therefore, the crime doesn't always fit the punishment or the punishment the crime. Uh, why was that person injured that way? The anger that's unrighteous comes out of bitterness, and it comes out of wrath. It comes out of evil intentions. And then thirdly, the C of that is simply this. It has no concern for the glory of God. Unrighteous anger has no concern. It does not have as its reason for being angry that it has God's standards or his holiness or his perfections. And so when one is angry, 
but you're just angry for what? What is anger? Well, in counseling, you would say anger is somebody not getting what they want. Somebody didn't give you what you want, so you're angry. But what does it violate? It violates the principle of justice. So someone cuts you off on the road. I know that doesn't happen here in the D.C. area, but... (laughs) But somebody cuts you off, and you get angry. Why? Well, when you boil it all down, it was a violation of what you thought was justice. I deserved to be treated in a better way, or I was here first, or I was driving in the speed limit, and they violated the justice. You see, um, when we get angry when it's not about, we think we're just, we think we're right, but when it's not by God's standards, then it's, un, it's unholy anger. I say all that to say this. The wrath of God is not a popular subject today, even among Christians. And we also forget I was saved from God's wrath. I haven't felt God's wrath in a long time. I felt his displeasure. I know God hates my sins when I do them. But I haven't felt the wrath of God in a long time. And in this passage, what is the wrath of God? Is God, is God like just seething? Yes. He is angry with the wicked all day long, the scriptures tell us. God is angry But he's not out of control. It is not arbitrary. It's against his law. It has boundaries. God does not attack people. And he warns with his mercy. God's anger is related, though. His wrath is related to his justice, his mercy, his kindness, his omnipotence. God will never sin in his anger. And it is always for his own glory to demonstrate. That may be overkill to some regard, but God's wrath is alive today against all unrighteousness. So now on page two, having said all that, let's, let's go through our notes. The basis of God's wrath against the Gentiles is because they suppress the knowledge of God. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. Okay, just another way of saying this. You're like, you're like, Dave, that's pedantic. You know what that means? Keep saying it over? I'm even going to be pedantic about being pedantic today. <laughs> God is not, a, it's not the God of deism in which God wound this up, put a law of sin and death in place and left. And he's only going to judge people at the end. God daily judges the sins of man. And those are in, under his wrath, are under his wrath today. And the things that they experience in light of the sins, the consequences of their sin outside of Christ, are part of the wrath of God ongoing. And the two great wrath of God displays will be the tribulation period. Scripture calls it the day of God's wrath. In which all the just penalties against all of earth and all of its countries will be demonstrated. And then finally, the wrath of God in hell, which is God's ultimate wrath against sinners. So Paul begins by looking back to verses 16 and 17 by using the word for. Paul is telling us that the Gentiles' condemnation before God is further reason to preach the gospel. So what is God's wrath in relationship? This amazing picture will change everything when you leave here. You'll add this to the collection of euangelion. So God's wrath comes from heaven 
it's revealed against two things. Ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who do what? They suppress the truth and unrighteousness. What truth are they suppressing? They are suppressing the truth that there is a God and that this God is eternal and this God is personal divine. It's, it is God, not a force. And that creation itself demonstrates to everyone who ever lived that there is a God. Uh, when we use the arguments of the cause and effect, cosmological argument for the existence of God, and we tell people, well, if there's, if there's any effect, there must be a cause. And if there is a world, then this world must, and it can go out of existence, and it's a, an effect, it must have a cause that explains it. And that's what Romans 1, Paul is doing. Romans saying, everyone is without excuse because everyone can see that there's a God, and it's evident within them. Let me dig in a little deeper. God's wrath is revealed now. Notice the present tense, is revealed, is evident. The wrath of God is against present ungodliness and unrighteousness. Explained in verses 24 to 32, where we are told three times, God gave them over. The present wrath is revealed by God's giving them over and is merely the prelude to God's eternal wrath against sinners. St. Augustine said this in the early church, The penalty of sin is sin. In this present age, before there's a hell, there is a hell, but before people are in it, what is the great way in which God demonstrates his wrath? By giving people what they want. The penalty of sin is sin. Oh, you like that? You don't want me? You'll not have me to rule over you. Then I will allow this sin to rule over you. And this sin will destroy you. Because the cost of disobedience is always higher than the cost of discipleship. And so if you love sin, sin will destroy you. And God will allow you. So he gave them over to the sins that they wanted to do. But what did it do? It took them to further depravity. Sin will not just leave you in one level. It will take you further down its road. And sin will ultimately destroy you. So at the bottom of the page, ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. When we talk about ungodliness, we're talking about theological wickedness, and unrighteousness is moral wickedness. I love whiteboards. If you're like, I like Pastor Dave. He's not as weird as I thought he was going to be. You know? We're going to let him stay for a while. And like, what should we get him as a class for a class present for Christmas? A huge whiteboard, right? All right. No Christmas present. Paul is going to take the two tablets of the Ten Commandments and split them into those two terms. Ungodliness and unrighteousness. Why is God angry with the suppression of truth in ungodliness and unrighteousness? Because they deny the existence of God and the nature of God. And they do acts of wickedness. And that's the two tablets we're about to look at. Okay? Ungodliness. First four commandments. Unrighteousness. The next six. The next two pages of our notes show a summary of God's case against the Gentiles. As found in those passages. The scene is God's courtroom. The Ten Commandments are the standard. Let's read this in the tone it's meant 
a sober pronouncement of man's condemnation under God's just wrath. Apologize for the gray. Makes it kind of difficult to read. When Paul says the ungodliness of men, he's reflecting then, of course, the first four commandments in Exodus 19. You shall have no other gods before me. You note that Romans 1, they rejected God and built their own gods. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. Excuse me. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male or your female servant or your cattle or your sojourner who stays with you. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. You see already, you can see that in Romans 1, the things they were violating were a violation of these four. They made idols, they rejected God, they suppressed the truth of God, they did not worship God. And these are the things in, on page 3 that Paul, that Paul has mentioned in chapter 1. They reject the evidence of God's existence. They suppress the truth. They do not honor him as God. They did not give thanks They have futile speculations professing themselves to be wise. They became fools. They have foolish hearts. Remember in scripture that the the person who says in their heart that there is no God is a fool. They exchange the glory of God for idols. They exchange the truth of God for a lie. They worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. Let's stop there and not go. You can go farther, but uh, I'm going to stay on this page for a minute. Who is Paul talking about? Is he just talking about pagan tribes? No. Yeah, he's talking about everyone. Everyone who's a Gentile. Because we also know at the back end when he said the court case Romans 3 is, so therefore we've proved all Gentiles and Jews are under God's wrath. Okay, so he's speaking about all of us as Gentiles. Because you don't have to have a wooden statue to have an idol. Right? Uh, and suppress the knowledge of God. When it says they suppressed the truth in unrighteousness and they believed a lie, what is the truth that they are suppressing? Jesus Christ is Lord. Okay, they, they are. That's a good point. Terry, right? Yeah. Terry? It is true that they are rejecting the gospel. Everyone who rejects the gospel is suppressing that. But in this particular case, before we get to the Jews and to the moralists, this person is assumed not to know the gospel but rather they see creation, and that's sufficient for them to be without excuse. That's right. What are they suppressing? The truth was they believed the lie in Genesis 3. What was the lie? That God isn't good, that God is withholding good from you, and that you yourself can be equal with God 
You can be as wise as God. That's what Satan told Eve and Adam. What is, no, yeah. What is the lie? That's the lie. You'll be fine if you reject God's authority. You can be like him. You can be as wise as him. You can be autonomous from him. And you'll be just fine because you will know good and evil the way he does. And you'll be just fine. Oh, and what is also not true? Satan said, what's the lies bang? You will not surely die. That's the lie. Not a lie. It is the lie of the universe. You twist the truth. That's right. You, you twist the truth that there is a God, he made you, and these are the subjects of it. When you reject, as mankind did and we do, the truth, and you set up autonomy, that's what Paul is talking about here. They rejected the truth and established a lie. Now, the lie has many ways of establish, you know, doing it. But what is the lie? I can be autonomous. We're going to be fine. Nobody's going to die. Oh, Genesis 5, everybody died. <laughs> right? And then Old Testament and New Testament just continue to demonstrate that civilization dies. And the farther we get from God. And so that's Paul's point of they rejected the truth and they have established a lot. So Paul's not just talking about people who are pagans, as we would describe them, but Gentiles, of which almost all of us in this room would All right, page four. It doesn't get any better. God is angry. His wrath will be upon those who reject him and reject his holiness. And so in light of that, Exodus 19 Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be prolonged in the land which the Lord your God gives you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Now, before I read the list, which is all from Romans 1, 18 to 32, right? Before we read that, you might ask the question in your mind, maybe, wait, Dave, but this is the Ten Commandments. The Jews had them, and that doesn't come for years. Paul's talking about pagans here. They didn't have the Ten Commandments. Uh, But we know two things, if you've read Romans. That is, Paul is basically saying it is evident within them. He's doing a... Seed. He's planting a seed to when he gets to chapter 2 in Romans, where he will take on the moralist, who is just a Gentile out of control, in which he'll say, your conscience has already told you all of this. Right? Because God's agent within, agent within, the Trojan horse, the agent within, or perhaps you put the conscience here, but conscience with knowledge, Our conscience in Romans 2 is that which tells us that those Ten Commandments, if you will, at least nine of them are being broken. Everyone ever born is born with a conscience. It's the Jiminy Cricket, right? And let your conscience be your guide. And so Paul's argument again, perhaps in a sense of simplistic, but I read the Ten Commandments because in essence, though that's the written code of Israel and God's summary of the law, but everyone ever born is without excuse because, first of all, they can see and it's evident within them. 
There's evidence outside of them, the created order, with America at the center. <laughs> and Florida, bigger than, I don't know why Florida's huge. <laughs> right here, you know, Florida on the, you know, in the Gulf Coast, okay. Okay, but everyone can see, according to Romans 1, that there is a God because of the cause and effect argument. If this is here, there must be a creator, if anything's, if anything's here. Secondly, there's evidence within them there's something inside the Velcro of that that, ex- that accepts those things and pulls them in. What is that? That is what Paul will explain as conscience. But in Romans 1, it's just simply an argument. Look, you know there's a God. You see, the beauty is when we witness, if we really believe Paul, then when we go to witness with people, we know that they have a problem. They already know there's a God. And they know they're out of sorts with God. But what about that person, though, who's like, nah. And they're like a theological atheist. And they act like, you know. The beauty is we know. Because God says, not what they say. God says they know there's a God. And then when we preach the gospel and when the law, if you will, and come to them with, do you know you're a sinner? Or have, you, have you ever lied? You guys ever use that approach, Ray Comfort, Right? Have you ever lied? Yes. What do you call liars? I mean, what do you call people who lie liars? Have you ever lusted? Yes. What do you call those people adulterers? You know, whatever. That approach is very biblical in the sense. You are, you are talking to the Trojan horse within. The, the secret weapon of God is the conscience. And so never think. Paul's confidence in the gospel is that it can do God's work. But the way God made man was to be able to receive that. And though the receiver is complicated and the radio station's been taken over by terrible people, the, the radio signal is still getting in. It's getting behind the, the Iron Curtain of their, their depravity. And so all that to say, these are the things, Paul, look at this list. Verses 18 to 32, look at this. God's wrath is just. God is angry with sinners. I'm sorry, I need to stop uh, and just say pastorally. So I've been looking for a place to get my hair cut. I mean, right, you moved to a new area. Some of you are like, what? So I've had my hair cut a couple places since I've been here. And I'm, you know, I'm not big into style. I think we all know this, right? <laughs> all right, no, nobody's like, Dave's a fashion, you know what? Fashionista, No. Dave's got like three shirts and everybody knows it. <laughs> but I have to get somebody to cut my hair, right? Okay. And so just yesterday, I went and got my hair cut. And what a precious man. Uh, an 87-year-old barber. Now, on one level, I was like, please don't stick me in the eye. <laughs> you know. <laughs> Wait, no, stop. You know, the, when he said, do you want me to do your eyebrows? Nope. You know? <laughs> Maybe next time. Maybe next time. But what a precious man. And to be able to just talk to him and said, hey, you know, Lord's blessing you. And just planting seed. Because I was preparing for this. I thought, this man is under the wrath of God. He's 87 years old. You know? And in that moment, I'm like, I've got to share with him. You know, I don't know how many more times. Uh, I'm not... I'm not the greatest evangelist of all time. I do take my opportunities on airplanes, particularly when I turn to the person and say, you know, if you died today, (laughs) 
you know, they always use that on an airplane, right? You know, so, but, but just yesterday, the preciousness and planting the seed with him about, you know, yeah, yeah, people don't live forever, you know, and whatever. So, just pastorally and as a friend in Christ, um, these, these are our neighbors. This was us before Jesus Christ. So, what do they have? Well, how have they suppressed the truth of unrighteous, in, in unrighteousness? Because the lust of their hearts to impurity. Their bodies are dishonored among them. Degrading passions. Women exchanging the natural function for unnatural and men abandoning the natural function of the woman. Um, much has been made of this passage where, as evangelical Christians, we kind of stop there and make that the whole passage. You can go either way too far. Oh, this is all talking about homosexuals. Well, of course it is. Of course it is. It's clear. That's what it's talking about. That's only one of the sins on here. Mm-hmm. What about adultery? Mm-hmm. What about disobedience to parents or ungodliness, right? So it's not that, oh, that's the key sin. And some have made that the linchpin of, of all of this. But what it is is one of the key ways you can see something that this passage is talking about, and it is this. That's a key word in here, isn't it? They exchanged the worship of God for this. They exchanged that which was natural for this. We live in a day of transitionalism in gender, in belief. But those are indicator lights on the dashboard of a civilization. You're driving along and you get your odometer, right? You're driving along with your dashboard. And, you know, there's a light that comes on sometimes that says, you know, I know that you think you got this together, but there's a problem in your car, okay? And when that dashboard light comes on, you've got to do something, okay? And if you don't, then things will get catastrophic, perhaps, depending on what it is. I do have a quick story on that and then come back to the point. My brother John and I were driving along in our car, a van, and I was driving and John was sitting there, and uh, a light came on, on our, an indicator light came on on the dashboard, and I was like, what is that? And we were both looking at it. We didn't know what it was. So John got the manual out, and we're driving along, and he's reading the manual to me as we're driving. And it says, and it you know, has a picture right there in the manual, and it says, if this light comes on, ignore it. <laughs> what? <laughs> Real story. I think it was a Ford Windstar, if I remember. But... Yeah, maybe I should have ignored buying it, is what I should have. (laughs) Funny story. But what this is, is homosexuality is only one of the key indicator lights that people have now done another exchange away from God's order, which is what? A rejection of God's authority. God is creator. He made us this way. At the beginning, he made them male and female. To go away from that is to reject God's order. But that is true of all of these things. But the word exchange is huge because God is angry because it's not simply, oh, they're doing that unrighteous act, but it is against God's authority. Okay, indecent acts, a depraved mind. It's filled with all unrighteousness. You know, all sin, sin starts in the mind. The affections want to sin. The old nature wants to sin. Hey, 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 huh? Yeah, this is going to be great. Become a Las Vegas Raider fan. That's what your heart's telling you. But sin doesn't happen until you agree with the mind. 
You have to agree to it. You have to take every thought captive to obedience to Christ. But the mind is required in sin and in holiness. You don't do holy things just because your desires, right? We desire a lot of things that we end up not doing. You have to engage the mind. And it is the depraved mind that is particularly dangerous here. That the mind in which it is wrapped around evil thoughts and impure things and untrue things. We're filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents. You see the different ways in which this is the backside of the Ten Commandments, right? You you see those in, in here. Without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful, and they give hearty approval to those who practice them. I'll stop there. If you have studied the book of Romans or you've heard this many times, I understand that you'll see this as review, but to say this, it is not simply in our culture that people are doing evil. It is that people are trying to legislate it. The legislators who legislate immorality have a double judgment from God. Just as those who teach the Bible and teach it wrongly have a double judgment from God. Not only is it wrong to believe that thing and to practice it, but to imbibe it to or teach other people to imbibe it is doubly evil. And it is doubly evil to be in government and try to legislate that which is immoral. And so God's wrath is on individuals, but it's also on nations. Because we legislate unrighteousness. And then God's wrath will be poured out justly throughout time and eventually in the tribulation and eternity. All right, page five. Now, last week at about this point in the morning, I opened it up for questions. I know, we have one lady out there going, don't do it, don't do it. (laughs) Now, we're all starting to get to know each other, so let me just say a little bit about Dave and his perspective on questions. We're just getting to know each other. I will not have any problem if I think it's going on forever or whatever. We are just saying, no, I'm not going to do that, or I'm not going to answer your question. And you'll get it, and you'll be like, that was pretty hard. I'm like, no, because everybody else came to hear the stuff, and they realized I didn't come to hear you teach from your seat, okay? And we'll give you a class if you're that good, okay? But the point is, we didn't come to hear you teach. You came here me teach, even if it's lousy, all right? <laughs> you know, just don't come, that, that kind of thing. At the same side, it's not a complete lecture. I do want informative questions or helpful questions. So think of this. Use your own self-control on this and say, Dave invites questions that do two things. Uh, they clarify a point I made, okay? Just for clarification. I didn't understand is a good question. Or could you at least explain? I, I, don't know if, I don't know how that fits. Or how does that relate to anything else? I'm, I'm willing to address that. Or a question that has arisen within, within what I've said. Clarification or just that Here's not a question. You know, I've always thought, we don't care. (laughs) We don't care. Come to my house and you can say that. When you come to dinner, oh, oh, I forgot. Carla and I will be doing Romans dinners or Doyle dinners. We want all of you to come to our house for dinner or lunch. Tonight. Tonight. (laughs) In the past, when we had a house in California, not a townhouse, we would have 20 to 25 people at a time for dinner, and we would go through a class like this in four to five dinners over a couple of weeks. It's going to take a little longer in our townhouse since <laughs> only one of you can come at a time. All right? 
But next, next week, I will have on Hopebook a list, you know, a basic uh, you know, way of you to sign up. And you can sign up for any of the five to six to eight dinners we're going to have at our house in the next couple months. Please come. You can come for a Sunday lunch. Uh, we'll have Sunday lunches, Sunday dinners, and then weeknights, sometimes Friday nights or Thursday. We'll try to put it all over the map. So if you have a small group and you can't come, and that way, we want all of you to come to our house and we get to know you. And what's beautiful is we share our testimony. We just quickly share our testimony. So I get to hear the testimony of 100 people. This has always been our delight. And just to get to know you better, and you can ask questions. And at that one, you can say, I don't agree with you. I'm like, you're out of the class. All right. All right. So that's kind of the nature of the class. I've taken up the time where the class questions would have been today. But that's my philosophy on questions in a larger class um, and if you have them. But please don't make it your preaching context. All right, I'm back to page five. I'm just going to continue then. Like I said, Scott, anyway. <laughs> now, what were you going to say, Scott? I actually have two. So yeah. You say in the first part, it's present tense, God, the wrath of God is revealed, and then it switches to past tense yep. where he gave them over. Yeah, uh, that's right. You want to explain that? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, um, actually, I do. Um, Good question. See? <laughs> just represent, just let Scott represent your questions, all right? Talk to him if ahead of time. Let him kind of go through this. All right. Okay, wrath present tense, and we'll make this the timeline of history. Wrath is always present tense since the rejection of Adam and Eve of God's authority throughout. And we'll put the tribulation down here. And we'll put, and we'll put, um, how close are we? 2022. <laughs> and who knows? Who knows, right? Right. And here's creation. I think what Paul is saying is that the present tense is whatever generation you're in, and it existed in the moment that Paul wrote. There's, a, there's the active present tense. But at the same time, at least by the Greek, it's, it's a present tense that continues with the ramifications. But in terms of that, this whole idea, but there is a downward spiral as such, a de-evolution of mankind. While man's science and powers and ideas are going up, according to scripture, like the end of the book of Ecclesiastes, say, you know, things at the end are going to look faster and better and all that. Man's scientific abilities to kill themselves is getting greater, which is God's wrath. God says, you want to be smart without me? Create atom bombs, man. Do it. Do it. But you're going to destroy yourself, too. And God's perfect weaponry is that God's chess game, he can never, he makes moves that look like it's going bad. You know, puts his queen out in the middle of the board. But at the end, there'll be a checkmate. And so, what is he, I think what he's talking about is he gave them over. It's not like 200, 2,000 years in. But I think he's talking about the Genesis part. When he says, hey, they rejected me, that's Adam and Eve, and they gave them so far over to idolatry, that's before the flood. You see what I mean? That he's saying mankind got themselves in that, and it hasn't gotten any better. And then the things which he's describing now become universal realities of a historical decline. Does, does that make sense, Scott? Yeah. Okay. Um, oh, do they, are they in a sequencing? Yeah. Yes, yes, because, because he's saying, and then he gave them over, which seems to be a greater giving over. 
And so I think, I think, again, given this, because the wrath of God is present, an individual can go through those without a civilization going through those. They reject the knowledge of God. They say there is no God. God gives them over to depravity of their own hearts. They start to exchange the truth of God for other lies in their own, their own gender, their own theology, their own whatever. And then God gives them over to a depraved mind, and then they begin to say, you know what, everybody should do those. Individuals are still patterning that. And so are civilizations. But what this is is an indicator that when you see these indicator lives in an individual or you see them in a civilization, you see the dashboard light going off and you see where they are in their decline. Everyone who's born is already at a bad place. They're under the wrath of God. But what they do with that and how they turn it into evil, even further evil, is a further wrath. If that makes sense. Okay, good. Yeah, good stuff. The Bible's cool. All right, top of page five. So they suppress the truth and unrighteousness. That is, they hold back. They detain the truth. The truth spoken of is the existence of an eternal, all-powerful, personal God who is a creator and the final standard of right and wrong. All mankind owes their existence to God and will answer to God for every thought, word, and deed. Why? Because it is evident within them and it is evident to them according to this passage. Everyone is born with eternity in their heart, the Bible tells us. With the knowledge of the existence of God, a conscience, and the clear witness of the universe to the existence of God. God's progressive revelation of himself leaves all men without excuse for not seeking, worshiping, and serving the only true God. Okay, bottom line, answering the one question. I know that if you're at Hope Bible Church any length of time, you've already answered this question. Okay? What happens to those who never hear the gospel? They go to hell. hell. That is true. That is what happens. If he's, no, no, no. Yes. Paul's argument, God's argument of wrath is everyone is under the wrath of God and will be under the wrath of God who does not repent and believe the gospel. But is it sufficient to send somebody? Is it fair to send somebody? Terry, I'm going to keep going, but I'll, 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 I'll catch you at the end. Um, is it fair to send someone to hell who's never heard the gospel? I mean, there's no medicine. We didn't know. God's saying they had enough evidence to pursue him. They have enough evidence that everyone knows I'm morally responsible to an eternal being who's divine. What does that mean? A person, a, a God. The God of the universe is understandable from nature. If as a Christian you don't embrace that, you feel uncomfortable with that. You feel like, I don't know, that just seems unfair or unjust. You will not only have difficulty with a lot of other things God says, but you will have difficulty believing the necessity of sending missionaries. He said, no, no, those are different. Why do we send missionaries to places where they're fine, they're good? That's not Paul. Paul's like, these people are in bad shape. We need to send missionaries to them because they will not go to heaven by their ignorance. Okay, we, I know that if you're a, a, a Christian for a length of time, you're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But we have to embrace that deeply, that no one is going to heaven who does not believe the gospel. No one. It does have other implications for, for things. So back to the top there in the gray box. It's because God has progressively revealed himself too. Creation is sufficient, according to God, to condemn, but it is not enough to save. 
You can't look up in the stars and find the gospel, despite the book called The Gospel in the Stars. You can't figure, you can't go to heaven because you believe in God. Everyone knows there's a God. Everyone knows there's a God. But they, they reject that because of moral issues. No one is simply rejecting God's existence for intellectual interest. Well, I just figured out there's not a God, and I decided not to. Why? Because I want to do what I want to do. That's what Paul's telling us here. They reject God, ungodliness, in unrighteousness. Everyone who rejects God ultimately is rejecting because they want to do unrighteousness. And it guides their theology. But then God gives conscience, and then he gives the content of scripture, and then he sent his only son, Christ, to be the ultimate revelation. And what did they do with him? They killed him. Man, if they would just send a physician, the heathen, the pagan, the Gentile who lives next to you in that beautiful place in Colombia, that person will not be able to go to heaven or go before the justice of God and say, man, if you'd have just sent Jesus to me personally. Why? Because they did, and they killed him. Um, The problem with being blind physically is not that there's not enough light in the world for you to see. Uh, One of the Puritans said, if you put two suns in the sky instead of one, but a person's physically blind, they will not be able to see any better. And if you're spiritually blind and you're blinded by your own sin, uh, more light does not cause greater reception. Uh, Remember what happened in Luke 16, you know, where the rich man and Lazarus that we mentioned last week and uh, the, the point of, hey, just send them back. If someone would rise from the dead, my brothers will believe. And, you, and Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, and if they won't believe those, a person rising from the dead will not change their mind. It's not miracles. It's something in the heart. There's something broken. All right, this amazing diagram at the bottom proves everything I've just said. <laughs> and let's, <laughs> let's just go to the next page. Now, what I've done uh, here on pages 6 and 7 is destroy your confidence in me as a teacher by putting an amazing amount of material together. No, this is a summary of Chapter 9 of Wayne Grudem's book of Systematic Theology. I do that because I think he summarizes this very well. But here's why it's in here, because mostly I'm going to blitz through and leave you to read or think about it. As a Christian, when you think about, so what does it mean that this is true, that people can see God in nature I think Grudem does a good job to show us what Romans 1 is talking about. Let me do it quickly in outline form. Number one, humanity's inner sense of God. We know that God exists in two ways. All people have an inner sense of God, and we believe the evidence that is found in Scripture and in nature. All persons have a deep inner sense that God exists. They are his creatures, and he is their creator. Sinful unbelievers actively or willfully reject some truth about God's existence. Sin leads people to think irrationally and deny God's existence. And someone thinking irrationally who has been deceived will say there is no God. And in the life of a Christian, this inner awareness of God becomes stronger and more distinct. Number two, believing the evidence in Scripture and in nature. The Bible everywhere assumes that God exists. Every created thing gives evidence of God's existence. Man in the image of God most abundantly shows the existence of God. The beauty of a snowflake, the majestic power of a thunderstorm, the skill of a honeybee. Honeybees are cool. The refreshing taste of cold water, the incredible abilities of the human hand, all of these and thousands of other aspects of creation simply could not have come into existence apart from that all-powerful and all-wise creator.
Everything in scripture and everything in nature proves clearly that God exists. And we are basing our belief not on the blind hope apart from evidence, but on an overwhelming amount of reliable evidence from God's word and his work. So traditional proofs that people have said, this helps demonstrate that there is a God. The cosmological argument that I've mentioned, every known thing in the universe has a cause. Therefore, the universe itself must have a cause. And the cause of such a great universe can only be God, someone who's eternal. You cannot have a an infinite regress of things that were created, something has to have been there from the beginning. The teleological argument, that is the goal of the end. Since the universe appears to be designed with a purpose, there must be an intelligent or purposeful God who created it. That is the argument, Haley's argument of the watchmaker. You find a watch while you're walking through the forest and you don't say, it must have evolved into a watch. This must have happened by happenstance. This watch came together over millions of years. You'd say, somebody made this bad boy. And that's the argument. Is like, this didn't just... Or you don't get a Webster's Dictionary by an explosion in a print shop. Okay? You, know, you, you just don't. I'm going to skip the ontological argument because nobody understands it. And when, <clears throat> and when Anselm came up with it in 1033, it was, it was dumb then. The moral argument, man has a sense of right and wrong and of the need for justice to be done. That's that point of anger. It argues that there must be a God who is the source of right and wrong who will someday mete out justice. Why do we know there's right and wrong? Because there's a moral lawgiver, someone greater who gives it. So can God be known is really the value of the idea of is it fair? Can man receive that? You know, what, what is it? Isn't, isn't depravity of man making it so that man has no idea what's out there. They can't see that. I don't think so. The necessity for God to reveal himself to us, number one, even general revelation, general is what can be seen from nature or what is created, depends on God's choice to reveal himself through the created order. If we are to know God personally in salvation, it is clearly necessary for God to reveal himself to us. All human beings have a tendency to misinterpret the revelation about God found in nature. We need the Bible to properly understand any revelation from God or about him. Let me combine those. Simply this. Everybody can see it's out there. Everybody knows there's a God. But because they suppress the truth and unrighteousness, that knowledge is immediately met with immorality. And how can I down the knowledge so I can up my immorality? And so people are always in that. It needs God to move in everyone's heart to change that perspective of the heart, the heart's orientation to God. B, or two, we can never fully understand God. Let's admit that. Because God is infinite and we are finite, we must affirm the incomprehensibility of God, or namely that God can never be fully understood. When we say that God is incomprehensible, we don't mean, I have no idea what's going on in the God thing. You know, I mean, nobody can know anything, but rather you cannot know everything. But that which we can know about God can save us, can sanctify us, help for service. It is sufficient. Scripture is sufficient for us to know God. Or else God would have added more books. There's enough there for us to live a godly life and please God. But it's like my shoes. Okay? Like, my shoes are cool. All right? You can't see them because I used to be able to do kung fu and put it up here, but now it's more like, <laughs> it's more like yeah, not. But my shoes are pretty cool. And I wear them, and I like them, and I know how to use them, and I know how to put them on and tie them and all that. But I don't know what cow gave up the leather for this. <clears throat> I don't actually know who put it together. You know what I'm saying. 
This, this to me, practically speaking, is incomprehensible. I don't know what all that means. But I know how to use it. And God's knowledge is practical, it's usable, and it is sufficient to do what it is. My word does not come back void. Thy word is truth. Sanctify them through thy word. The word of God is sufficient. 2 Timothy 3.16, for all, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction of righteousness, that the man of God may be thoroughly furnished unto every good work. The word of God is sufficient to do its work. But there's a mystery behind that, that we will never know all about God, and even in eternity, right? When we get there, we'll be like, wow, I'm just, I got this thimble full of knowledge of this and eternally, we'll be learning about the greatness of God. There'll never be a time when we exhaust it. Dude, class over. Doyle's got it. No. Eternally, we will be in the unfathomable reality of the greatest being in the universe. All right. Three. Yet we can know true God truly. That's my point. Although we cannot know God exhaustively, we can know God truly because all that scripture tells us about God is true. Moreover, we know God himself, not just facts about God. And the Gentiles are without excuse, verses, verse 120, so that they are without excuse, as I said before, anapologitos. They're indefensible. It's without an excuse. Why? Because the Gentiles are idolaters. They do not glorify or thank God, for even though they knew God, they did not honor God as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. You always have to quote Spurgeon, all right, or MacArthur. And here we go. Spurgeon says, I cannot say anything much worse of a man that he is not thankful to those who have been his benefactors. And when you say that he is not thankful to God, you have said about the worst thing you can say of him. Now look not merely at the people who lived in Paul's day, but at those who are living now. I will soon prove ingratitude on the part of many. There are many counts in the indictment we have to bring against them in God's high court of justice. I really think that's true. That's one of the worst sins as a Christian, not to be thankful, to grumble. You know, have you ever been on a, in, a, in a grocery store and there's a child there who's just going crazy at the counter because as they're about to go up there, they see all the candy. Like, I want this, I want the hood. They're, they're throwing themselves a tantrum. Now, besides parenting skills 102 and 3, as Carla would say, spank that child and make them happy. <laughs> right? Right? They would be happy. But, you know, when that goes on and the, and the parent lets them do it, it's a reflection on the parent, not simply the child. Because you're like, why isn't the parent doing something? What, what? And it brings questions. It doubts, like, is the... It puts a weird spin on who the parent is. You're like, I don't know what to do here, you know, all of those things. When we, when we act like that as children of God, and we grumble and complain because God didn't give us something we wanted, and others get a wind of it, it makes people think that we think God isn't good, or God has withheld stuff from us, or God doesn't take care of us, and it's a weird kind of thing. All right, page eight. They became futile in their reasonings, and their foolish hearts were darkened. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was dark. And thank you for World Religions and Cults, Part 1. Every, every world religion and cult fits into those two phrases. They're, they're, they became futile in their speculations. 
and foolish hearts were darkened. John MacArthur, to reject God is to reject the greatest reality in the universe, the reality which gives the only true meaning, purpose, and understanding to everything else. Refusing to recognize God and give his truth, guide their, let their truth guide their minds, sinful men are doomed to futile quest for wisdom through various human speculations that lead only to falsehood and therefore to still greater unbelief and wickedness. I'm going to skip down to see. The Gentiles exchanged the worship of the creator for his creation. Professing then to be wise, they became fools and became candidates for presidency. <laughs> and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. And this is the if proposition of the cosmological argument. And that is this. If anything now exists, something must be eternal. Or else something not eternal must have emerged from nothing. Right? That is what we're arguing. You could say, no, the universe is an illusion. This is a self-defeating proposition. No one lives this way. As Francis Schaeffer said, well, hand me your car keys <laughs> because I want to enjoy my illusion. All right? <laughs> or the universe is eternal, they will argue. Three reasons why this is not true. Evidence for a beginning. Hydrogen is not being used up, and it's irreversibly decaying. I'm not a physicist. Um, that would be Rob Thompson, who's teaching the class on Genesis, if you want to do that. Third, the universe emerged from nothing, but nothing produces nothing, and no effect can exist without a cause. No one actually believes that except for when they talk about creation. <laughs> you know? It just emerged out of nothing. What is nothing? Well, there was something in the nothing. It's either nothing, nothing, or it's something, nothing. All right? And then the universe was created by an eternal being. That's the fourth option. That's the reasonable one. But sin has marred that understanding. The universe points to an eternal being. This next chart is not for me to teach, only to say it's back down to, uh, I think, Scott's point. The results of God's wrath is he gave them over, and I'm just showing the digression, if you will, and that Augustine did say the penalty of sin is sin. So God gave them over to dishonored bodies. He gave them over to the passions and their due penalty, and then he gave them over to depraved minds. That's something I want to read to you in the last five minutes we have together. Many of us are familiar with, but have not necessarily read, the sermon by Jonathan Edwards, the American preacher, on sinners in the hands of an angry God. And if you were to talk to somebody who said, you know, I don't hear what you're saying, but at the top of the page, I don't see the wrath of God in my life. I'm living large. I got a good life. My health is good. I'm not really worried about what you're saying. That's just doomsday stuff. This is an excerpt from Jonathan Edwards' sermon, The Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And this is truth. Jonathan Edwards says that the reason why they are not fallen already and do not fall now, is only that God's appointed time has not come. For it is said that when that due time or appointed time comes, their foot shall slide. Then they shall be left to fall, as they are inclined by their own weight. God will not hold them up in these slippery places any longer, but will let them go. And then at that very instant, they shall fall into destruction as he that stands on such slippery declining ground on the edge of a pit 
He cannot stand alone. When he is let go, he immediately falls and is lost. The observation from the words that I would now insist upon is this. There is nothing that keeps wicked men at any one moment out of hell but the mere pleasure of God. By the mere pleasure of God, I mean his sovereign pleasure, his arbitrary will, restrained by no obligation, hindered by no manner of difficulty, any more than if nothing else but God's mere will had in these least degree or in any respect whatsoever any hand in the preservation of wicked men for one moment. The truth of this observation may appear by the following considerations. It is no security to wicked men for one moment that there are no visible means of death at hand. It is no security to a natural man that he is now in health or that he does not see which he may should now immediately go out of the world by any accident and that there is no visible danger in any respect in his circumstances. The manifold and continual experience of the world in all ages shows this is no evidence that a man is not on the very brink of eternity and that the next step will not be into another world. The unseen, unthought of ways and means of persons going suddenly out of the world are innumerable and inconceivable. Unconverted men walk over the pit of hell on a rotten covering. And there are innumerable places in this covering so weak that they will not bear their weight. And these places are not seen. The arrows of death fly uneven at noonday. The sharpest sight cannot discern them. God has so many different unsearchable ways of taking wicked men out of the world and sending them to hell that there is nothing to make it appear that God had need to be at the expense of a miracle or go out of his ordinary course of his providence to destroy any wicked man at any moment. All the means that there are of sinners going out of the world are so in God's hand and so universally and absolutely subject to his power and determination that it does not depend at all the less on the mere will of God whether sinners shall at any moment go to hell, that if means were not made use of it, or at all concerned in the case. Let's pray.